0: Oh, okay.
1: oh. you're listening listening to hold that thought
0: from arts and sciences at washington university in st louis thanks for listening to hold that thought to continue our series on cities for today's podcast we'll hear from marcus Burliant, professor of economics at washington university in st louis One of Brilliant's research areas is urban economics, a field that I was surprised to learn is quite small. Only about 80 economists worldwide specialize in urban economics. In today's podcast, Brilliant will help us understand the economics of how cities form and how they later become suburbanized. We'll also talk about the role of uncertainty in urban economies. But to get started, let's hear a bit about the field itself. You might think... Doesn't just about every urban issue involve money and economics, in one way or another? And after hearing the following list of questions that urban economists tackle, the answer certainly seems to be yes.
1: Our field is is framed by a set of questions. Not a set of models, not a set of data, but a set of questions. So these questions are, for example, why do cities form where they do? What explains their spatial distribution? Why do some cities grow faster than others? What what is the role of government in the provision of public services, transportation, and housing? What are the causes and consequences of suburbanization? And finally, uh, what are the causes of inner city problems and what are their solutions?
0: Unlike some other fields that address similar issues, Brilliant points out that urban economists rely on the scientific method. They typically start with a question, like one of the questions we just heard, and then formulate models to help answer that question.
1: So the answers to these questions that I've posed already depend on many factors. These factors tend to be the the primary focus of the models we create. Okay, and these are factors such as how much people value amenities in a city. Commuting cost, and commuting cost itself is broken down in general into two pieces. There's monetary commuting cost, what you spend on cars and gasoline, or if you take public transportation, it's uh, bus fares, for example, and any taxes you may pay in order to subsidize public transportation, Uh, and time cost. So this is the time, the value to yourself of the time that you use in commuting to school.
0: In this case, school equals work. Remember, this interview took place at a university. Now, one of the questions Brilliant first posed was, what are the causes and consequences of suburbanization? This is a question that urban economists have looked at for several decades. And it's really a question about the structure of cities, addressing how near or far residents live to the central business district of a city, or the CBD. To explain the economics of suburbanization, Brilliant takes us back to about 1970.
1: What we call the new urban economics, which was invented in about 1970 by Ed Mills, it's specifically set up to address internal city structure. What it looks at is how people trade off commuting cost versus distance to their jobs and how that affects housing prices as well. So in general, what you expect if commuting takes longer as you move further and further from the central business district, you expect to see what we call a rent gradient, that housing becomes less expensive to compensate for that uh, as we go further and further from the city. So uh, what that also means is people become further and further uh, spread out as they move further from the city. In other words, their lot size or house size becomes larger. So,
0: the further you get from the central business district, the less you pay, and the more housing you get. This explains what is happening, but not necessarily why.
1: So in suburbanization, there's a con- there has been a controversy about what causes suburbanization. There's two basic theories. One is called the natural evolution theory, which is there's no market failures. It's simply people with a higher income, naturally buy more housing, so they prefer cheaper housing, which means as, they, as people have higher income, they move further from the central business district. And so suburbanization is simply caused by an increase in people's income due to, say, technological progress, or a decrease in commuting cost. So it, do, it doesn't cost people as much either in time or in monetary value to get to the CBD.
0: That's the natural evolution theory. What's the other?
1: So there's a second theory. <laughs> These theories, it's nice to have competing theories, right, because we can test them against each other. There's a competing theory which uh, says that the causes of suburbanization are social causes. So it is, for example, crime in the inner cities that is driving people out or school systems in the inner city that, is, that are driving people out. And one can actually distinguish between these theories empirically. So you could look at panel data, what we call panel data means all of the U.S. cities over a long stretch of time, or you can compare European and U.S. cities or Canadian and U.S. cities where there are different crime rates, different costs of commuting, different income levels. And and so you can look at that, and the the evidence is tended to be mixed. Of course, not all cities end up with the same structure— And as Dr. Berliant
0: mentioned, comparisons between cities in the U.S. and Europe, for example, can provide clues into the economic or social causes of suburbanization.
1: European cities tend to have different structures. They tend to have the wealthy living in the central business district, say Paris, and the poor living on the outskirts of town. And we can look at that with the data. And people have found several causes. One, of course, is commuting. There are different costs of commuting, say, in in Paris versus St. Louis. Parisian roads were originally constructed many years before automobiles, and so it takes a longer time to get to the CBD in Paris as opposed to the CBD in St. Louis. Okay, so the the time cost is larger. The monetary cost is also larger because gasoline is more heavily taxed in Europe than it is. It's more costly on net to the consumer. So those are two reasons that the wealthy might live, the high-income people might live in the central business district as opposed to the outskirts. There's yet another uh, reason, which was elaborated in a beautiful paper by some of my friends, Bruckner, uh, Thies, and Zanou, uh, which is that higher-income people value amenities more. And the amenities in Paris are more centrally located, they claim, than amenities, say, in St. Louis. So those are the basic reasons for difference in internal city structure, as developed by our models.
0: As we've learned, economists can use models to predict some things about urban life and city structure, like the value of property at a given distance from a city center with a certain commuting cost. But the role of uncertainty is worth studying as well, according to Dr. Berliant.
1: The the big topic that I've been dealing with that haven't that hasn't been addressed much in the literature in urban economics, mainly because I think a lot of the people working in the area don't have the tools to do it, is the role of uncertainty. In urban economies. So when you move from one place to another, even within a city, you may not have complete and perfect information about how that is going to change your life and how it's going to change your level of happiness. If you move between cities, the problem can be even worse. So one of the things I've been studying the last few years is the role of uncertainty in urban economics, and in particular in people moving around between cities. There are different types of uncertainty that are used in general economics as opposed to urban economics. Um, There's what we call general uncertainty, which is uncertainty that's common to everybody. And there's what we call idiosyncratic uncertainty, which is uncertainty that's person-specific.
0: Let's start with idiosyncratic uncertainty. This is the type of uncertainty that is unique to you or me or anybody else who might be moving to a new city.
1: Idiosyncratic uncertainty might have to do with what your particular productivity is going to be in one place as opposed to another.
0: The other type is general uncertainty.
1: General uncertainty, with non-idiosyncratic uncertainty, has to do with living conditions in a place. So if you're moving from one place to another, you may not know much about the school district or about the commuting cost involved, how congested the highways are. Now, some of this you can get off the Internet, but you may not understand things completely. And these these sorts of uncertainty have very different implications for what the, the eventual efficiency implications are. It's important to note here that in economics, the word efficiency means
0: something very precise. Efficiency in this sense is also called Pareto optimality. Dr. Berlin explains that urban economists typically look at both the real-world situation and how it can be improved. The world as it is is called equilibrium, and efficiency is how economists would prefer to do things. So what exactly is Pareto optimality?
1: Pareto optimality says, literally, you're at a Pareto optimum if you can't make anyone better off without hurting someone else.
0: Okay, Shifting gears slightly, we turn to the work of an economist whose name you may recognize, Paul Krugman. Krugman is a professor and a well-known op-ed columnist for the New York Times, and in the early 1990s, he made a contribution to urban economics that Dr. Berliant says changed the field. Krugman's work also brings us back to one of those big questions posed at the beginning of the podcast.
1: One of the the questions that we haven't talked about much that I've worked on various times in my career, is why do cities form? And there's uh, an impossibility theorem, believe it or not, back in the mid-1970s, proved by a man by the name of David Starrett, who showed that in our standard economic models, under standard assumptions, of quite surprising, that cities will not form in equilibrium. And so we don't have a very good explanation for why there are cities. Now, you can think philosophically, if we don't have a good explanation of that, how are we going to do policy? You know, if our models can't explain how cities form, why cities form.
0: Think about that. No cities, or at least no explanation of why there are cities. And remember, equilibrium is what economists call the real-world situation, as it already exists.
1: And so Paul Krugman came up with a particular model that is very natural, that allowed cities to form in equilibrium. And what he showed is that for high transportation cost, that people will be, as Stereot theorem says, uniformly distributed. But as transportation cost decreases, there will be a point at which suddenly all the labor will, will agglomerate, as we say, or coalesce in one location. So
0: earlier, we were talking about how commuting costs shape city structures, and now we've arrived at a model in which transportation costs actually cause cities to form. But how does this work exactly, according to Krugman's theory?
1: The way things are built is consumers prefer a variety of goods, and the firms, of course, prefer profits. So uh, when transportation cost is high, each location has its own set of firms producing for the people in that location. OK, so we say then that the locations are, are autarkic because they're not really trading much with the other location. But when transportation costs gets low enough, the firms see that there are more profit opportunities in one location as opposed to the other. Say there's a little bit more, uh, more population in one location as opposed to the other. They see there are more profit opportunities and more sales there. And since consumers prefer more variety, more firms enter, wages go up. And so the, the consum- more consumers move there, and this is a self-reinforcing process.
0: And that is one way to make a city. Many thanks to Marcus Berliant for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to his faculty profile on our website. We're at thought.artpsi.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl. Dot .edu you can also subscribe to our weekly podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher or find us on Facebook or Twitter thanks for listening